Father, as we have been singing, what a wonderful, wonderful gospel and a glorious gospel that you have initiated. The gospel is all about you and the fact that you have glorified yourself in the exaltation of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the salvation of sinners such as us. And Lord, we thank you for that, that by grace, through faith in Christ alone, that we're able to have hope. Father, I pray that this morning, as we continue to look at this opening passage in this wonderful letter of Colossians, that, Lord, you may glorify yourself in the preaching of your word, and not only that, but in the hearing and application of your word, that you would help us to walk away people who are challenged to be different, to be on mission here on this earth, to proclaim this glorious gospel, and to live it, Father, in the way that we interact with the unbelieving world, in the way that we love one another as Christ has loved us. Father, be with us even now. Lord, I pray for the Louisi family, and I thank you so much for uh, the fact that you have, Lord, seen fit to take Christine home to be with you. But I, yet I pray for the comfort, uh, you're the comfort that only can come from you upon their family. I pray that, Lord, you might allow them during this time to bear up under their trial by trusting in you, Lord, because you are a faithful and good God. You only give good gifts to your children. And I pray that, Lord, they might lean upon your promises, that they might exalt Christ in their response to this trial, Father, and that, Lord, you might comfort them and encourage them, Lord. And I pray that we as a body might continue to come alongside of them uh, to serve them in any way that we can, to encourage them in any way that we can. Father, I also thank you for that little baby all the way in Turkey that was born. I thank you so much for that little baby. We know that children are a blessing from you. The fruit of the womb is a reward from you. Father, I pray for that little baby's salvation already and for all the babies being born here at Calvary, Lord, and mamas who are pregnant, I just pray that you would continue to, Lord, bear much fruit as um, you bring life into this world. Be with us even now, Father, as we hear your word. We want to hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> this is part 2 of a message that I started last week titled The Glorious Gospel of Christ. If you would turn to Colossians chapter 1, and I want to read verses 3 through 8. So as soon as you're there, if you can stand for the reading of the Word of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. The Word of God says this, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Amen to the reading of his word. You can have a seat. Well, how many of you have heard the saying, familiarity breeds 
contempt. How many of you have heard that statement? Yeah, it's a popular saying. Uh, It's a saying that refers to, um, um, people use it to refer to an attitude that we all as humans may adopt or may fall prey to when uh, maybe uh, a person or a particular experience um, or a particular thing was something precious to us at one point and we cherished that particular thing or person and we praise God for that particular person or thing. But eventually, with the passing of time, uh, that particular thing, we might respond to, to if it's a person with indifference. Um, contempt comes into our life and we are indifferent and maybe even there's a sense of ingratitude as that particular thing, we become familiar with it or a person. I think we've all experienced that, right? The truthfulness of that saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Whether it's with our, in our marriage, uh, maybe at one point uh, in your life, in your marriage, that particular uh, female or that uh, man was so precious to you and you cherished them. But with the passing of time, you become familiar with one another and you stop being grateful or thankful for that person. Uh, maybe with your kids. Maybe at one point the kids were a blessing. But now you struggle with that. Uh, you become familiar with them. And maybe there's, there's weaknesses there or struggles or problems. And all of a sudden, you're no longer giving thanks to God for that particular child or children anymore. That can happen with our jobs. That can happen with anything uh, in life. Um, we begin so thankful and grateful for others or for those particular blessings. But with the passing of time and familiarity, those things, we stop seeing them as precious and even rejoicing in those particular people as we once did. Things or people, once they become common to us, um, they stop and they cease to be a blessing if we're not careful. We're all prone to that particular weakness, even if we're in Christ, right? We're not perfected yet. We struggle with sin, so we may struggle with indifference towards those things that at one time were precious. Well, for many Christians, uh, the gospel can become one of those blessings that we take for granted the more familiar we are with that glorious gospel. Uh, Maybe at one time, for you, the gospel was the greatest blessing of your life. Um, You were so grateful for what God had done for you. It was so precious to you, the jewel who is Christ, the great pearl of great price. At one point, he was precious to you, and you would express gratitude to God and give him thanks for everything he had done in and through Christ. You were eager even to share Christ with other people. It drove you, this love for Christ and this cherished one. You wanted others to hear about Christ. You wanted others to come to know him. But with the passing of time, maybe we don't rejoice in glory in this Christ anymore. The gospel is no longer precious. For many of us, beloved, we become so familiar with the sweet saving message of saving grace that we no longer really think about what God has done for us in Christ Jesus as much as we used to. He is not the subject of our meditation. We rarely even tell others about Christ. We rarely ever exalt or cherish or relish in this gospel. That can happen to all of us, even as believers, right? So the statement, familiarity breeds contempt, is true. And we all struggle with that. And we might add, familiarity not only breeds contempt, but we might say lethargy and complacency as well. 
Maybe at one point we were so passionate about the spread of the gospel, but now it's not really at the forefront of our thoughts anymore. I think part of the problem, at least for me in my experience, maybe this is something that you share as well, is that I tended, especially early on in my Christian walk, to see the gospel and treat it as the door through which I got into this salvation thing. Um, But if we stop and think about this, and the more we grow in Christ and the more we mature, we realize that the gospel is not just a door that we get that gets us in salvation, if you will. It is everything, is it not? It, the gospel is everything. In fact, look at chapter 3 and verse 4 of Colossians. Listen to what Paul says. He's exhorting them in chapter 3, verses 1 and following to set our eyes that we should set our eyes on Christ, who has been raised, who is in heaven. We should set our eyes on Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God. And then he says in verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4, When Christ, who is our what? Our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. The gospel is not just a door through which we get in. The gospel is our life because it has to do with a central person who is Christ. The gospel is our life. Without an ongoing reminder and unpacking of the glorious truth of the gospel, we fall prey to other means by which we may feel we may grow, beloved, when we take our eyes off of Christ. But the truth is, we don't ever move away from the gospel, you see. We don't ever move away from the gospel. Because listen, the gospel has to do with a personal relationship with Christ, right? has to do with a relationship with the Lord Jesus. We don't fall in love, for instance, with marriage. We fall in love with the spouse with whom we got married. It's about a relationship. We don't just fall in love with or move past this marriage thing as this concept or system. Marriage has to do with a personal relationship with somebody, an exclusive relationship. The gospel as well. We don't ever move away from the gospel because the gospel has to do with a relationship with the person who is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is centered on the person and the work of Christ. And that intimate relationship that we have by faith in His atoning work. So we can never move away from the gospel. And yet we become so complacent and lethargic with reference to Christ, right? That's why it is this gospel that in the opening section of Colossians, Paul focuses the Colossians upon this particular glorious gospel. Because in writing to address false teaching, which had crept into the church... Um, they are succumbing to this false teaching and are being influenced by it because in some way, shape, or form, they've taken their eyes off of the real thing. It's almost like they've moved away from this Christ. That's what he has to say. It is Christ who is our life. Don't move away from Him. Don't follow empty deception. Don't go after vain philosophy. Don't go after these things. The substance is Christ, you see. He has to remind them of this. You have the real thing in the glorious gospel. In fact, more than 80 references, 80 references plus to the gospel and to Christ are found in Colossians. Why? Because Paul knows that if there is a perspective-shaping reality, it is the gospel of Christ. 
Because at the end of the day, the problem with them being influenced, beloved, by the false teaching is that they have forgotten in some way, shape, or form the beauty and the wonder of the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he has to show them the real thing. And he does it in the flow of a thanksgiving, an opening thanksgiving, as he is typical for Paul. Now last week we began to look at three wonderful truths. Three wonderful truths in Paul's thanksgiving that motivate us to rejoice and to stand firm in this glorious gospel of Christ. And we saw, first of all, the glorious person of the gospel, if you remember. The glorious person of the gospel. That God the Father has invited us into a personal relationship with Himself by sending His Son into the world to atone for our sins so that by faith in the person and the atoning work of Christ, we enter into this beautiful relationship with the eternal God and we can call Him Father. As His eternal Son has addressed Him as Father. God didn't have to do that. He wasn't lonely. Our triune God wasn't lonely and insufficient and inadequate so that He had to do this because He needs humanity, beloved. He did it because of His great love to us, toward us. So He initiates sending His Son into the world to redeem broken sinners like us. So that by faith in the atoning work of Christ, we can enter into this wonderful relationship with God. And I hope that you rejoice in the glory of that. In the wonder of that. No matter what the difficulties are that you're going through. God has invited you. If you're in Christ, He's invited you into a personal relationship with Himself. By faith in Christ. So we saw the glorious person of the gospel. Secondly, we saw the mighty power of the gospel, or we began to see the mighty power of the gospel. That in verses 4 and 5, Paul gives thanks because of the mighty power of the gospel shown in the lives of these believers. We saw these three great virtues that are evidences of the transforming power of the gospel in the lives of the Colossians. And we talked about faith and love, which are a miracle A miracle that God does in the human heart and spiritually dead sinners to bring about faith in Christ, trust in Christ, because at one point we were spiritually dead. And not only that, but our love was so deficient and so not genuine. And yet in the gospel, when you come to faith in Christ, He transforms you so that you being a hateful person can actually now live out genuine, authentic love for other people. Beautiful. And we didn't get around to the third virtue, which is hope. Hope. So faith, love, hope are evident in the lives of these Colossian believers because of the mighty power of the gospel. And I want us to zero in on that third virtue, that third evidence for which Paul gives thanks. Hope. Hope. Look at verse 4. Paul gives thanks. And here's the reason why he gives thanks. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. And here it is, verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of what you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Stop right there. Paul gives thanks for their faith in Christ Jesus, for their love for one another. And now we see that Paul gives thanks for the hope that these believers have because of the mighty power of the gospel in their hearts and lives. 
The gospel is glorious because it brings hope, beloved, to people who previously had no hope. How often do you think about that? When you reminisce about your past life outside of Christ and the type of person that you were and the types of sinful things your heart chased after and you were hopeless and without God in the world, do you reflect upon that? And it drives you to give thanks to God like Paul does here in Colossians chapter 1? Because now we have hope. In fact, Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 12 of Ephesians, talking about their former manner of life outside of Christ as unbelievers, he says in Ephesians 2, 12, remember that you were at that time outside of Christ, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. And ready for this? Having no hope, And without God in the world. Having no hope and without God in the world. Think about that. That was the description of our life, beloved, before salvation. No hope. No hope and without God in the world. I don't know about you, but the more that I walk with God, the more I can even imagine Living life without God. I can't even imagine that. Life is hard enough as it is with all the struggles with sin and the trials and the difficulties and watching all the suffering all over our country and all over the world. I can't even imagine trying to live this life and enduring this life without God. I can't. Impossible, is it not? Impossible. You know, many times, I hope you do this, You know, I'm driving over to the church on Sunday mornings or during the week, or I'm interacting with people at the at the grocery store here in Burbank and or different places, Glendale or wherever. And I'm coming across people and I'm talking to them, or I'm driving and I'm seeing all of these people walking around all over the streets of our community without God and without hope in the world, beloved. They need to hear the gospel of Christ. The very thing that God has used, this message, to save you is the very message that they need to hear from us because they are without God and without hope, you see. And God uses instruments like you and I to proclaim this gospel, to live the transforming power of the gospel before them, to practice mercy and compassion towards other people because they don't have hope, beloved. They don't have hope. As you and I look around, stop and think, or you drive around, or you you go to your job, or you have kids in public school, or kids in other types of schooling, and they come across unbelievers, or our kids are unbelievers, stop and think and reflect for a moment that people need hope, and the only hope is in Christ. He is the only hope. We understand as Christians that because of the mighty gospel, we understand that this present world is not everything, right? We understand that. But when you look around at our society, 
What you have is people pursuing possessions and pursuing materialism and pursuing houses and cars and dogs and mice and fish, everything. Right? And you know what? Those things pursuing wealth and staying healthy are not evil things in and of themselves. All right? But if those are the idols of your life and you elevate them above God and His gospel and the mission for which He has you here, then those things can become sinful things, beloved. If you're using your time and your resources and your possessions and your energy all for other things, trivial things that at the end of the day are going to pass away and you're not focused on the mission of bringing hope to a world through the gospel proclamation, then those things are sinful things and you need to repent. See, when we look around at the people in our community, People are living for the here and now. People are living for those things which give them satisfaction in the here and now. They consume their lives. And when they don't have those things, it takes away their joy. Right? I read of a young lady the other day who committed suicide. And she committed suicide because somebody broke into her bank account and stole all of her money. That was the main cause. Why? It was very unfortunate that somebody stole her money. But her heart was set on that particular thing, you see. That's where her treasure was. Where your treasure is, there will your what? Your heart be also. See, Christians must be different. Christians must be different. We understand that at the end of the day, it does not matter what you gain on this earth at all if you don't have the pearl of great price, who is who? Jesus. Jesus. It doesn't matter what you gain on this earth. That statement, he who dies with the most toys wins, is false. It is wrong. It is a lie. It is untrue because you can't take any of your toys outside of this world, right? You can't take them into eternity. You can't. That's why Jesus pleaded with the multitudes in Mark 8. And he said, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Beloved, there is nothing that you and I can gain in this world that will be of greater value than the eternal destiny of your soul. So the statement, he who dies with the most toys wins, is not true, is it? It's not. If you don't have Christ, you don't have anything whatsoever. See, for the Christian, we don't live, or we should not live, for the passing pleasures of this world. Passing possessions. Passing property. Things that will burn at the end of the day. That is not where our hope comes from. Not in our present riches, not in our possessions. No. Colossians has much to say about the believer's hope and where that hope lies. And I want you to see this. Look at chapter 1 and verse 12. Chapter 1 and verse 12. Here Paul, beginning in verse 9, begins to pray for these Colossian believers. And we're going to be there in a few weeks. And he says in verse 12, giving thanks, he's praying that they would be giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share 
in the inheritance of the saints in light. Do you realize that? There's an inheritance waiting for you someday. It's a glorious reality. It says, give thanks to God. He's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And he's going to expand later on, on the fact that it's in and through his beloved son, that he's accomplished this for you in the glorious gospel. Look at chapter 1, verse 23. He's talking about in verse 22 that they've been reconciled in the fleshly body or the body of Christ through death. In order, verse 22, the middle of verse 22, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the what? The hope... Of the gospel, literally the hope, which is the gospel that you have heard. He says, don't be led astray, the broader context of Colossians, don't be led astray by false teaching, impotent teaching that has no power at all to sanctify you. Stay true to this gospel, which he calls hope. It is the hope of the gospel. Look at chapter 1, verse 27. Paul is talking about his ministry and the mystery that God has sent him to proclaim. He says in verse 27, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And what is this mystery, Paul? What is this gospel centered upon? He says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery of the gospel that Paul proclaims centers on the glorious Christ who's bringing glory with him someday. You see, the hope of glory. Look at chapter 3. Can't wait to get into some of those passages. There is so much there. Chapter 3. This is a transition transitional point here verse one therefore if you have been raised up with christ keep seeking the things above where christ is seated at the right hand of god set your mind on the things above not on the things that are on earth for you have died and your life is hidden with christ in god and listen to this when christ who is our life is revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory wow our hope is this return of the King, Christ, who is our life. And we will be revealed with Him in glory someday, beloved. Colossians has so much to tell us about this wonderful, wonderful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The message of Colossians is very clear. Listen to this. Christian hope is found in Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Love that. He is the pearl of great price. He is the one, beloved. He is the treasured one. We know this, do we not? We affirm this as believers. And yet what makes it so hard is that we lose heart here on earth, right? It is difficult to wait for those things which are to come, those future realities. It is difficult to live in the here and now with all the suffering and the pain and memorial services for our beloved saints who are going home to be with the Lord, and the physical trials that you and I experience, and bodies deteriorating, right? It is very difficult to be forward-looking. Hope has to do with that which is to come. 
In fact, someone has defined hope as the totality of blessing that awaits the Christian in the life to come. Hope has to do with these future realities, these future promises of God that we can't see in the here and now, but by faith we hold on to those promises, right? That's what makes it so difficult. We walk by faith and not by what? Sight. It's very, very difficult. Romans 8.24 says this, For in hope... We have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? What is he saying there? If we could see all that God has promised, then hope would not exist, and neither would faith in those particular promises. See, one day, our faith will be turned to sight when our hope is realized, right? We'll be turned to sight And as we saw last week, we can have faith, beloved, in the future promises. And our hope is sure in the realization of those things that are to come. Because those promises that we look to, and those promises that are to be realized, are in the hands of a dependable God who will bring those promises to pass, right? Our hope is grounded in an almighty, faithful, sovereign, dependable God. Not in our circumstances, not in our trials, not in the difficulties that we struggle with. In the case of Christian hope, different than a kind of hope, so-called hope of the world. The Christian hope is upon the God who is sovereign and faithful and who is dependable and who is more than able to keep those promises. In Romans 5.5, 5, Paul says this, And hope does not disappoint. In other words, it does not fail. It does not deteriorate. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. What is Paul saying? If God greatly loved us by sending Christ to die for us who are ungodly and gave us the spirit of God to empower us, then surely, surely that God who went to that extent to send his son Jesus into the world to die for our sins, surely he is able to keep those promises, is he not? Surely he can. So our hope does not disappoint because those promises are in the hands of an almighty God who has already infinitely sacrificed in sending His Son Jesus into the world to die for our own sins. Our hope cannot fail. It cannot fail. One commentator, Douglas Moo, writes this, Christian hope is not mere wishing. It is a fervent yearning, confident expectation and patient waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises, a full Christ-centered assurance that these promises will indeed be realized. Hope is a living and sanctifying force, end quote. Powerful. So different in the world, right? Say, I hope that this will happen. It may or may not happen. So different than what the Bible tells us about Christian hope. Now, when will our hope be realized? When will our hope be realized? Well, it will be realized when Jesus returns, right? When Jesus returns. Listen to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. It says this, 
For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You hear that? We are not of this world. If you are in Christ, if you have placed your faith in Christ, you are a believer, you are not of this world. You're passing through this world. You only have a mission to accomplish in this world, and then God is going to take you someday. And the one that we're waiting eagerly, expectantly for is the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you waiting for Him? In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul is teaching that the same grace who saves us is the same grace that teaches us to, to be looking for the blessed hope, he says. And the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What does grace teach you to do, says Paul to Titus in chapter 2 there? It saves, it sanctifies, but it also teaches you to be looking to the author and perfecter of your faith as you live the Christian life. Looking for that glorious appearing of our great God. And Savior Jesus Christ. Beloved, one day Jesus is coming back, is he not? It's no joke. It's true. It's not fable. It's not myth. He's coming back. It's true. Do you live with an eager expectation of the King's return? Are you living, looking joyfully to exult in that coming? Because it's going to happen. The King is coming back. He's coming back. For his own. He's going to deliver the final death blow to those who are rebels against him. He's coming back. He's coming back. You know, one of my favorite um, parts about being a dad, I love being a daddy. And I remember previous to just the last year and a half, we were in, a, in an apartment complex for about a decade. And I remember after a full days of work, uh, getting getting uh, to the front gate of this of these courtyard apartments and buzzing uh, number six where we lived. And I remember that my family would buzz me in and I would open the front gate and out from the front door of number six, all these little kids run out, the little Hernandez kids, running towards me, yelling, Daddy, 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 Daddy. Just rejoicing. And my wife would come up to me and she's like, Oh, I'm so glad that you're home. They've been asking all day when you were coming back, you know. She's trying to do school and she's trying to do various things with them. But they were eager for their daddy to come home. They wanted me there. They longed for my return. They wanted to relate to their daddy. Beloved, I wonder, in an infinitely greater way, far more significant than human relationships, how much are you longing for your Jesus? Are you longing for the Savior? Are you longing for the return of the king when he comes back? And what is he going to do when he returns? He's going to do many things, but he's going to fulfill what he promised you that he would give you. He promised that he would give us an inheritance, did he not? If you don't believe me, remember what he said in, in John chapter 14. John 13 through 17, those chapters are, uh, take place in the upper room 
And the disciples are coming to grips with the fact that their Savior, their Lord, the one that they now know is the true Messiah, but they're still coming to grips with various things. They know that he's going to the cross. He's going to leave them and they need comfort. And Jesus gives it to them in John 14 and verse 3. Listen to this. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Aren't those comforting words? (laughs) I mean, especially when you're going through difficulties. How beautiful and wonderful to remember those precious words. They were spoken to his disciples and all future followers, by the way, meaning us who are in Christ, at at a moment of crisis, words of comfort. I'm leaving, but I'm coming back because I'm preparing a place for you up there. And one day I'm coming back for you and you will be with me forever. Is that comfort to you or not? It is for me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 describes our inheritance as imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It is sure hope. It is not going to pass away. It is not subject to decay, not subject to corruption, not subject to termination. There's no expiration date, beloved, for our reservation in heaven someday. No expiration date. None whatsoever. It is sure, it is unwavering, this hope of our inheritance in contrast to the decaying and passing temporal pleasures and possessions of this earth. Our hope in that inheritance is unwavering, incorruptible, indestructible because it is in the hands of Almighty God. Amen? He holds that. This is why Jesus' resurrection was so, so significant. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, without the resurrection, we are of all men most to be pitied, he says, us apostles. And I would say all of us as believers, there is no hope without Jesus having risen from the dead, right? No hope whatsoever. Listen, because Christ rose from the dead, we shall be resurrected one day as well. We shall rise from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 says this, but now... Christ has been raised from the dead. There were those in Corinth that were saying, no, he hasn't risen from the dead. And he says to the Corinthians, no, we all saw him. Many of us saw him. Indeed, he has risen from the dead. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, meaning Adam, he's going to explain it. By a man, Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Beloved, because Christ rose from the dead, you who are in Christ and those beloved believers that you have been there to bury will rise from the dead someday. Does that bring comfort to you? You know, I look at my little Chloe we have a, a daughter, a little three-year-old daughter who is who has special needs. And I look at her little frame, and every time we go to the doctor, there's always something new wrong with her. 
wrong from our perspective, but really, the Lord has made her perfect, right? There's always something wrong with her. Now she may need knee surgery in the near future if things don't change. I look at her little frame and her delayed development, and I'm thinking to myself, whoa, one day if this little girl gives her life to Christ and he saves her, she will have no more special needs. She's going to get a glorified body. A glorified body. You have family members or precious people in your life who have special needs. If they are in Christ, one day they will have a new body. They will be resurrected. What a glorious, glorious truth. Are you in physical pain this morning? Is your body deteriorating? You know, I'm 39 years old and I feel like I'm 200 years old. Wah, 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 I know. You know, there's a lot of mileage in this body here. But what comfort to know that one day in the midst of that physical pain and the deteriorating body that can't go many times, we will have a glorified body, right? It's a wonderful reality because of the risen, exalted Jesus. That's why Paul defended in 1 Corinthians 15 the resurrection. People, listen, Jesus has risen from the dead. And if he has risen from the dead, then you all can have hope in Christ that you all will rise from the dead. Amazing. That's why in the early church, the apostles in the book of Acts and other disciples defended the resurrection and preached the resurrection. It's true. This exalted Jesus has risen from the dead and you can all have hope if you repent and put your faith in Jesus. You can all rise from the dead someday. Amazing. Beloved, listen to me. If you're grieving because you've lost a loved one, fear not. Fear not. If they were in Christ... They will rise from the dead someday. Those whom you've loved and you've buried, those elderly saints that have passed away the last three or four years at Calvary, one day they will rise from the dead as well. Right now they're in the presence of God. Amazing. This is our hope. This is our hope. And listen. When Jesus returns and you're resurrected and given a glorified body, you and I are going to be like him. We're going to be like him. Are you tired and weary of your sin? Are you tired of the war and the battle against sin in your mind and in your motives and in your words and in your actions and in your misplaced priorities? Are you tired of your sin? I am so tired of my sin, beloved. Christians are not people who don't struggle with sin. Christians are people who are in a war against sin. The unbeliever doesn't struggle with sin the same way. We are in a war, in a battle with sin, because we want to be holy, set apart from sin unto righteousness, right? That's what we want more than anything else. I remember talking to one of my buddies many years ago, saying, Kempis, I, every night when I lay my head on my pillow, I am exhausted because of the fact that I am at war with sin all day long. All day long. And he was struggling with a particular sin. Weary, he said. And I said, brother, praise God for the battle and the struggle and the war. Because if it wasn't there, then you'd have something to be concerned about. Right? It means that you're dead and you don't feel anything. 
One day we're going to be like him, beloved. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, writing to believers, now we are children of God. This is 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. One day, the hindrances of sin, beloved, will be gone, unclouded, unhindered closeness with the living Christ. Do you look forward to that day? I can't wait for that day. When we will be completely righteous, completely clothed in righteousness. Our standing is that we are righteous in Christ right now, but we're not perfected. One day we will be perfected, absolutely, completely holy, glorified. In Revelation 3, 5, Jesus, speaking of those who walk faithfully, says this, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Hmm. One day. Can you imagine that day? The day when you're perfected? When you receive the crown of righteousness, as Paul tells Timothy toward the end of his life, in 2 Timothy 4.8, he says, I'm longing for that future day when he will give me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Complete holiness. Total conformity into Christ-likeness. Are you tired and weary with this life, beloved? I am. I have those moments especially. Take heart and keep working hard for Christ now. Because one day, very soon, you will have eternal rest. I love what Mike Faber said a couple of days ago, I think. Quoting J. Vernon McGee, saying, Better to burn out than to rust out. Right? We're always concerned with preserving ourselves. I understand rest and everything, and he mentioned that. That we should get rest and we should be good stewards of our body and all of that, yada, yada, yada stuff. Right? It is good for us to do that. Otherwise, we'll deteriorate, and then we can't serve the Lord. I get it. But many times we justify our own complacency, right? And our lack of pursuing Christ and service to Christ, and we're lazy, and we don't focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ and serving Him and being spent in this life because we will have eternal rest. Work now, rest later. Right? Work now, rest later. Seriously, in the power of the Spirit, God will give you the energy and the strength, beloved. Work now, rest later. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. I want you to see this. One day we will have eternal rest. The Apostle John was given a vision by our Lord Jesus Christ about how the whole story ends. Don't you love hearing about the how a story ends? I mean, not at the beginning. You want to see the whole story first, right? But here in the Bible, we get a picture of how everything ends. Revelation chapter 21 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. 
and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Verse 4, and he will wipe away every, what? Every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Right, for these things are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Those, everybody's a sinner, right? But there are those who embrace the Lamb of God and they're going to be there in the new heavens and the new earth where there's the abode of God and the dwelling of God. But those described in verse 8 died as sinners without the solution of having put their faith in Christ. And they will not be there in His presence. One day in the future, beloved, our brokenness, our sin, our deteriorating bodies... The pain over lost ones, pain and broken relationships will all be done. It will all be done. God will make all things new. Listen to me. Our hope is upon a real place. A new heavens and a new earth where there is eternal rest. But even so, even with an inheritance and whatever that reward looks like and it's all its details... None of it would matter if Jesus wasn't there. None of it would matter if it is not for who is there. I want to see my Jesus. I want to see Jesus. I want to see that one who came and died on the cross for my sins to make it possible for me to have a relationship with him forever and ever. And I want to see Jesus. That's who I want to see. Ultimately, it is not even our our lost loved ones, nor the inheritance, nor the wonders of that place, nor a new body or anything else, were it not for the fact that Christ is there. That's who I want to see. I want to see Him. You know, I look back at my wedding with my wife, Andrea, uh, August 28th, 1999. You like that? I remembered it. Make sure you tell her that, okay? It was a wonderful event. It was a a great time. It was a wonderful church building that we picked. Uh, Beautiful wedding decorations. A a wonderful wedding party. Nine females and nine males. Wonderful friends who we're still friends to this day with most of them. And we keep in contact with wonderful guests, even though it's all a blur now, and I don't remember most of those people who showed up. But they were wonderful guests. Hand-picked people who were in our lives. Everything was wonderful. The decorations were great. It was wonderfully organized and beautifully decorated. Everything was great. But I got to tell you one thing. 
if Andrea wouldn't have showed up, none of it would have mattered, right? There was only one person I wanted to see that day, really, at the end of the day. I wanted to see her coming down the aisle, my bride, my precious Andrea. I wanted to see her. She was the main event for me. It didn't matter anything else. I don't care what type of decorations, who else was there. It was all a blur when she walked in. It was like, whoo, wow. And everybody else was blackened out. If it wasn't for my precious Andrea, it wouldn't have mattered at all. If Jesus is not there, it doesn't matter. Any, everything else doesn't matter to me. I want to see Christ. I want to see Christ. That is our hope, beloved. That one day we're going to see Jesus, who is the hope of glory, according to Colossians 1.27. He's the hope of glory. And listen to me. If you have this hope fixed upon Christ and the inheritance and a resurrected body and eternal rest and peace and all of those things that he will wipe away as far as suffering goes. If your eyes are upon Jesus and this eternal eschatological end time perspective, then you will be a person who pursues holiness and who pursues his mission on earth. That is the point that Paul is going to make in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 and following. If this one is supreme, then focused upon him and set aside sin, put on holiness, pursue holiness, walk in loving obedience, learn to serve one another, raise your family by pointing them to Christ. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, be submissive to your husbands as unto the Lord. If your eyes are fixed upon Jesus who is returning, there are ramifications for the way that we live life in the here and now, right? There are. If we have our eyes fixed on this with this eternal perspective, listen to what 1 John 3, 3 says. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. We will pursue holiness and obedience on this earth, beloved. And we will pursue our mission. You know why we're here? Pastor MacArthur has said it many times, so I'll quote him. We can worship the Lord better in heaven. Perfected. We are here, beloved, to make disciples. We are here to preach the gospel so that people will be converted here in Burbank, beginning with where God has us, preaching the gospel so that people will come to know Christ and then building up these baby believers to maturity and Christ-likeness. We're going to see that at the end of chapter 1, later on in Colossians, maybe in 10 or 15 years when we get there. We are here to mature people into conformity to Christ, to be instruments by which God does that, by means of His Word and the power of the Spirit of God. That's why we're here. We're here on mission. And if you have this hope fixed upon Christ as the resurrected one, then you're going to want to see this Christ preached so that people will be there in the new heavens and the new earth worshiping with us, beloved. Yeah, we don't have, at the end of the day, in our hands, control or power over who gets saved. But God has called us to be faithful to a message. Amen? So if our hope is fixed upon Him, then we should be preaching the gospel. We should be striving to make disciples. There are present implications for the way that we live, beloved, in light of our hope. 
But Kempis, is it possible to lose this hope? Can we lose this hope? I want you to see this in conclusion. Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. Notice this. How sure is this hope? Colossians 1, 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in the heavens, he says. Literally, laid up for you in the heavens. Plural. This means that this hope is already reserved or prepared for believers in the heavens. How sure is this hope, Paul says? It is certain. It is already awaiting you. Nobody can touch it. Listen, God, the owner of this extravagant resort that you can never even imagine what it looks like right now, right? We only get glimpses of it in Revelation and other places. God, the owner of this extravagant resort, has already made reservations for you to be there. No expiration date. You had to pay nothing. Jesus shed his blood to get you there. It's already done. That's what he's saying. It's laid up for you in heaven. It's certain. It is untouchable. In fact, the Spirit of God permanently indwelling us, beloved, at salvation is the down payment, is he not? Ephesians 1.13 says that the Spirit is given to us as a pledge or a down payment of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. 2 Corinthians 1.21 Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. The Spirit is the down payment for our inheritance. The Spirit is permanently indwelling you. If you're a believer, He dwells within you. He will not leave you. He is the down payment of your inheritance. What a glorious hope, beloved. That's the mighty power of the gospel right there. Because God did this. We have faith. We're able to love one another. And we have hope. Hope. And I encourage you, in the midst of the difficulties that you're going through, in the midst of memorials for beloved family members and saints, remember that. In the midst of physical pain and deteriorating bodies, and many of you having special needs family members or kids, remember, we need to continue to impart the gospel, the glorious gospel of Christ, that people may have hope. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our hope. Thank you for Christ, the hope of glory. Thank you that he's coming back someday, Lord. That it is sure that this hope in Christ is unwavering, incorruptible, indestructible, reserved in heaven for us. You've made the reservations by putting your son on the cross, Lord, pouring your wrath upon him. Your wrath being satisfied for our sins. And Lord, when you brought about faith in us so that we would put our trust in that atoning sacrifice, you forgave us. And we've been reconciled to you. And now we can look for this hope, Lord. Help us, Lord, to live with an eschatological perspective, an eternal perspective, Lord. And help us to recognize that we must be living here on this earth on mission, Lord. Making disciples. Proclaiming the gospel. Reaching our community. That, Father, we may be looking for divine appointments to share about the grace of Christ, the free gift of salvation calling sinners to repentance and faith in Him, Lord, that they may have hope and that one day they may glorify You in the new heavens and the new earth with us as well. We pray for all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.